Strategist Cowboy. Our first contestant this week is a beer called Desperados Original from the brewery Desperados in Mexico. But it was brewed in Croatia by a company from the Netherlands. And the beer is flavored with real tequila. Desperados? I didn't know that Mexico was associated with criminal gangs. Did you? This must be a first. A Desperado original costs nearly 19 Swedish kronas or about 2 US dollars and 20 cents. The beer has got a 5.9% ABV. It contains water, malted barley, glucose syrup, sugar, hop extract and citric acid. Like literally all Mexican gangster beer, this is probably a thirst quencher first and a beer second. What type of beer is it even? Is it a lager? The beer is bottled in a thin clear bottle sized 33 centiliters, i.e. about 11 liquid ounces bottle. The beverage is said by Sustainblog to best be served at 8 degrees Celsius i.e. about 4 to 6 degrees Fahrenheit. The brewery says nada about preferred serving temperature. But everyone knows that a Mexican beer should be served really cool. How about the experience then? It's got Desperados in embossed letters on the bottle. But that's got nothing to do with the experience, except that it's kind of cool. It smells like uh, it's got an aroma of a Pilsner. One moment. It's got a large head, three fingers almost, well, three fingers. And it's uh, yellow in color. You can see it through the glass, the bottle, I mean, because it's uh, clear, a clear bottle. Uh, there's no dark color in it. There's a yellow, this is a yellow beer. Uh, taste, okay. Tastes like uh, well, like a martini or or tequila or something. Not much beer taste in this one. 
well, a mixed beer taste. It's kind of um, alcohol strong. It's got 5.9% uh, ABV. So it's um, pretty rich, even if it is a beverage, first of all. And it's, uh, well, not much beer. A little bit bread-like, perhaps, uh, but not like uh, regular bread-like. Just a little bit uh, soft in the edges, on the edges. It's uh, it's smooth uh, actually. It's not yeasty, but uh, it's kind of smooth. This is a thirst quencher for sure. Taste on my palate. Let's see. It's, this is a <clears throat> sweet, a sweet beer or beverage. For sure it is. And, and uh, um, it's candy-like. It's got no bitterness. Absolutely no bitterness at all. That I can sense. But a little bit fruity and especially candy-like. Uh, spices, let's see. Maybe some herbs, <clears throat> perhaps. I don't know. It's... Uh, I uh, Well... The undertone is um, sweet as hell. The carbonation level is not very high. It's pretty low actually. And it's not creamy. But it's, it is um, soft on your palate and tongue. Especially on your tongue. Tongue. Is it acidic then? It's got some um, tangerine, lemon peel, or lemon exact uh, uh, rather lemon it's a a little bit sour i wouldn't say acidic uh, but th there are aberrations since uh, this beer is uh, not a beer actually I don't think uh, there's much beer taste in it. 
if you're in a desert and you don't have anything to drink and someone served you this, you'd surely drink 10 of them. But I wouldn't buy it an another time uh, apart from this one time. I'm not in the desert. Okay, what about aftertaste? One moment. It's got a sweet candy-like aftertaste. Um, I don't like it. But we can take take that now. What about grading then? Um, if I was gonna grade it as a beverage, I'd give it uh, two devils out of ten possible. And uh, for a beer, I give it one devil out of ten possible. That's uh, the case with this beer. And um, I'd like to say that I'm not a big fan of Mexican beers. Uh, I haven't uh, come across more than... A, I've come across a, a couple of Mexican beers before and um, they are um, usually uh, or I mean half of them are bad the other half is uh, okay but but it doesn't taste like beer they rarely do that taste like beer that is it looks like I'm not going to drink any good beverages or beers beers today because the other one I will uh, review is a red beer and I don't like red beers. So it will be quite meaningless for me. Uh, but uh, I'm doing this show so I have to do it. Sometimes you have to try beers you're you you not you don't really know how it tastes before you've tried it because otherwise you, there would be no use of having a channel like this i'm going to be sparse today so the next beer i'm going to try in a couple of hours uh, four or five hours or something because i don't want to fill up with a beer i don't like it's uh, no meaning, it's meaningless. So I'm ending this review now and I come back in a second for you in a couple of hours for me. Okay, it's now been more than six hours and it's time for our next contestant. It is a red ale called King Goblin Imperial Ruby Beer from Richwood Brewery in England. Richwood Brewery is located in the town of Whitney in Oxfordshire. You can read the following on Swedish Wikipedia, translated of course. Quote, the brewery was founded in 1983 by Paddy Glenny under the name Eagle Brewery. 
This then became Glenny Brewery and got its current name Witchwood Brewery in 1990. The brewery is named after the nearby and mythical forest, the Royal Forest of Witchwood, which is mentioned in the Doomsday Book from the year 1086. Witchwood is said to be one of the most haunted forests in the world. It is from these folklores that the brewery gets their inspiration for its beer sorts and labels. End quote. An imperial ruby beer costs nearly 27 Swedish kronas, or just over 3 US dollars. That is kind of cheap for a ruby red ale that comes in such a large bottle size. The beer has got a 6.6% ABV. It contains water, crystal malt and chocolate malt, barley and hop of the for me unknown type Sovereign, the English hop Puggles, the Slovenian hop Styrian and the American hop Cascade, well-known hop Cascade, I should say. The beer is bottled in a lovely sized 50 centiliter, i.e. about 17 liquid ounces, embossed black glass bottle. This ale is said by Sustainable to best be served at 8 to 10 degrees Celsius, i.e. about 46 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. The brewery says nothing about preferred serving temperature. How about the experience then? Not much of a Amber colored, I think, or brownish. It got a sweet aroma. Citrus, um, citric, citrus aroma. It's got a really weak head, not even one finger, but it's uh, a lot of beer. Uh, taste. Coffee taste for sure. Cane sugar, like. Is this really a red beer? I don't think it's particularly red in color or in taste. 
it's better than I thought it would be. But I don't like um, red beer, ruby beer, for, for the most part. But this one is okay, if it's red even. It's reddish in color, reddish brownish. Yeah, and that's more the color, reddish brownish. And it's... Uh, Pretty rich. It's not got that really full body, but it's got coffee taste and uh, cane sugar taste. That's uh, makes it taste. It, it got a lot of taste in it. If it's bread, like it's uh, pumpernickels or something. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, I'd say that it's a little bit yeasty, but maybe my imagination. Often, uh, often they, they uh, wait a minute here. It's an ale, yeah. So very often uh, an ale, uh, gets a little bit yeasty in its nature, even if it doesn't really taste yeast. Taste on my palate. Uh, uh, it's very strong, this beer is 6.6% ABV. So it tastes a little bit like liquor on my palate. And sweet. It is a sweet beer. It's also um, just slightly bitter. Just slightly. Is it candy like? Maybe, I don't know. Fruitiness. A little bit acidic, maybe, perhaps. But I think if I had to choose between candy-like and acidic, I'd say candy-like. It could be both, but... Uh, uh, it's pumpernickel's taste and coffee taste. Has it got any spices? Yes, it does. Some sort of uh, herbs, maybe some spices. And the undertone is uh, the undertone is uh, well, I don't know. Carbonation level. 
I'd say that it's uh, pretty low carbonated. It's not creamy. And I don't say that it, it is acidic and uh, aberrations, are not in, in such a kind of a beer. No aberrations, I'd say. It's uh, this type of beer. <coughs> Sorry. Excuse me. Aftertaste. Uh, we'll see it in a minute. It's got a coffee aftertaste. I think I'm going to drink a cup of coffee after this beer. Usually I wouldn't recommend it, but uh, it goes well with this, I think. But uh, I have some um, cheese doodles too that I'm eating and have eaten. Okay, what about grading then? Well, for a red beer, it's a ruby beer. It's a, I think it's a well worth. A, it's not my favorite beer, but uh, let's see. I don't want to grade it too low because uh, this is a red beer I could could like. So I will grade it. Six table out of ten possible. As, it's as high as I can go, but it's got to do with my taste buds, and not so much to do with the beer. I think, maybe some other people like it much better. I think I think they would. Many, many odd people are like red beers or ruby beers and um, stuff like uh, normal people doesn't like. <laughs> okay. So I gave it uh, six devils out of ten possible. Absolutely don't drink and operate heavy machines, military or civilian. Drink responsibly or not at all. Don't drink at all if you're underage or pregnant. Thank you. This week's lesson. Liaisons. What were the decisive factors for the discrepancy in the loss quotas for Germans versus the Russians in World War II? Both Germans and Russians usually had momentum in their attacks, although the Russian attacks were generally much more blunt. German local commanders had for the most part as a habit to stop and think when faced with a difficult situation, unless the drum fire or grenade launcher fire was too overwhelming, which in that case, if one was motorized, made momentum usually preferable. It was just a matter of in which direction. The German commander could stop and act after a local reinterpretation of the situation, thanks to the Germans' tradition with following mission tactics principles. While the Russian commanders lacked that possibility because they were command controlled and strictly so. The Russian commanders could stop, 
but they primarily sought contact with the staff to receive orders from a general who was far from the center of events. The following is a description by the Lupander brothers of how the lack of early liaison functions affected the parties in the battles of Tali Iantala in 1944. Quote, the liaison functions of both parties were often strained beyond the breaking point, and senior executives often received information about the situation at their units too late. Orders often came too late, and by that time they tended to lack all relevance. It was thus a battle in which the initiative of the individual soldier and the leadership of the lower commander came to play at least as, as great a greater role as the planning by the generals and the availability of material resources." End quote. One can probably expect that liaison functions across the whole spectrum in intense battles turn out to be just as chaotic in modern wars. The middle chief level gets an increased importance, importance over the staff when the middle chief is in the battle zone and can correct the outdated or incorrect decisions from the staff. This can only be done with the use of mission tactics and by the middle chief commanders leading by example. Once the fighting has begun, the army staff has clearly outplayed its cognitive tactical role to an even greater extent in today's modern wars without wide fronts and with infiltrated lines and scattered smaller groups of weapons and sensor systems in need of stealth. But there should still be a common air, army and navy staff. It would be good if this staff through IMINT, IMINT being imagery intelligence, i.e. the analysis of electro-optical satellite and aerial images, can follow the opponent's movements via UAVs, radars, passive systems, signal reconnaissance and satellite reconnaissance so that they can keep track of and intervene in the front unit's favor by e.g. sending an attack aircraft or provide artillery support when they see it as necessary to protect their own units and crucial weapons systems or when the combat units themselves call in fire support. Surely, telewarfare units should be subordinated to the staff, not, or? Mission Tactics vs. Mission Control Lack of tactical security measures to fall back on was a factor that plagued the Russians especially at the beginning of the war, when the Germans had momentum. The Germans never advanced faster than thought, when it was not necessary or a child's play. The differences later in the war were perhaps small, but the effects were great. But everything boils down to the planning, performance and initiative of the individual warrior as well as the general.
Commitment, precision, and motivation are key factors. Motivation is generally not static over time. Precision has to do with the manager's planning and cold-bloodedness, as well as the system's inherent, inherent, inherent precision and functionality. The quality on the soldier's training and the follow-up exercise frequency are decisive. The degree of cadaver discipline with subsequent penalism in the system are decisive as well, since cadaver discipline and penalism have a detrimental effect on initiatives. Mission control is really just a consequence of penalism and cadaver discipline, and is therefore difficult for most nationalities to counteract. When you also remotely push your young people into sacrificing their lives for the cause, while you yourself sit in relative safety holding the wand, the young people lose the compass of their leaders, of their leaders so that the young people are forced to navigate on gut feeling. When you tip the tile forward in the hierarchy, 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 through the domino effect, it is often one or more tiles at the end that do not fall. The order is waste in the sand or is poorly executed. At the bottom of the hierarchy, hierarchy the children have none, no one to lead them into battle. Chaos reigns and plans are spoiled. The middle managers evade responsibility and do not take initiatives. Everyone expects the lowest, the youngest, to lead by example in their place. Especially in the case of suicide missions, which are common in their planning at the highest level. The contrast to Israel is enormous. In Israel, it is the top operational commanders and officers who lead suicide missions on the ground. One cannot overestimate the importance of leading by example. It has been proven time after time again. Anyone who does not understand this must be either an illiterate or possibly a coward. An important factor is actually the language. The language or written word must not be ambiguous when giving an order or providing information. A vague language can be fatal, especially in a cadaver disciplinary and penalistic system where response to orders are suppressed. VDV soldiers Spetsnaz as a formal and well-defined unit came into being in 1950. Spetsnaz is a collective name that comes from the words Specialnoye, special, and Naznacheneye, purpose. I think I understand why the Russians invested in Spetsnaz units for the Nordic environment during both, during, but especially after World War II. First, there were few roads in Finnish Lapland, and the existing roads had a limited cap capacity which probably took away a lot of freedom of movement with armor from the Soviets, 
and limited access to targets for them. Spetsnaz units have this advantage of giving the Russians the tactical initiative, and they are tactically successful by their own accord for the sole reason that they attack suddenly and unannounced. unannounced. Successful tactics are not only constituted by good and superior training and joint practice with a well-functioning collaborative system. Successful tactics also come from having the initiative. And Spetsnaz gets that automatically, or rather as a result of being thrown into the opponent's territory and forced to perform. And because they have these designated targets, and no front to horn themselves bloody against, and of course because they are invisible and attack unannounced, when they do not leave traces behind, which they frequently do. When the Russians invest in many Spetsnaz units, they get many small tactical advantages, and thus they also get the operational advantage, at least as long as they are properly equipped. The Russians have certainly realized this in view of the Swedish Spetsnaz jitters in the 80s and the fact that they won victories with exactly that tactics in the Finnish part of the Barents region during World War II, despite heavy losses. Especially at a later stage when the Germans had learned how to fight, how to fight in the Finnish Arctic environment, the Russians had greater losses. It should not be a one-sided Swedish secret that the Russians get an advantage when they deploy Spetsnaz or VDV units, as they are called today. In the right places. Not recognizing the intelligence of the Russians only means that we will fail in the future. They are no stupider than them learning tactics from history. Sabotaging VDV we can meet with anti-VDV units fitted with optical and optronic equipment, dogs and light grenade launchers, because sniper groups are not mobile once they have camouflaged their amb ambush place. We are therefore allowed plenty of time to set up the grenade launcher behind the, tar the target and get ready to knock out the sniper group. Dogs must help to find and neutralize VDV soldiers that uses sniper rifles. Someone has to clean up among them as they will sabotage and stay hidden adjacent to the sabotage sites to play sniping against influx of maintenance personnel. Neutralizing such VDV is time consuming and you need to use many men for the job. But with dogs you can do the job faster. Officers, the spoils of war Question mark. I have an insight that mission tactics are superior to mission control in the field for ground forces, but that it has but but that it has its price. According to information I have stolen from reputable authors' books, in the first five weeks of Operation Barbarossa, the twentieth German Armored Division lost 11% of its soldiers, 
19% of its non-commissioned officers and 35% of its officers. The 10th German Armored Division lost from June 22, 1941 to December 5th in the same year. 42% of their soldiers, 47% of their non-commissioned officers, and 63% of their officers. All German divisions had similar loss figures for officers. Himmler's five divisions, which at the beginning of the Battle of Russia had reached 100,000 men, lost between June 22, 1941 to November 19, in 1941, no less than 1,238 officers and 35,377 men, of whom 13,037 fell in battle. In a report to the Corps headquarters, Corps headquarters, Theodor Eike, head of the 3rd Waffen-SS Totenkopf Division, wrote, The losses, quote, the losses in combat have so far deprived this unit, Totenkopf, of nearly 60% of the important corps of officers and non-commissioned officers. The losses of non-commissioned officers are catastrophic. A company that has lost its old exper experienced officers and non-commissioned officers cannot attack. It also becomes unreliable in defense as it lacks a backbone. There are already companies in this division that are unable to conduct reconnaissance in front of their front sections. End quote. It is the nature of mission tactics that the officers fall away because the officers are often in the center of events and they are magnets to enemy fire. For that reason, it is good that senior officers dress in uniforms that do not de deviate too much from the lower ranking uniforms, especially for the pattern on the uniforms. Degrading officers mainly in wartime is also good for that reason, but the higher salary should remain. Russian snipers during World War II had orders to shoot at the figures with the narrow lower legs because they knew that these were always officers. Thank you and see you later, alligator. Oh, thank you.